This is Andrew Dunn, cinematographer on CinePod, the Cinematography's podcast. The following podcast contains explicit language. You're listening to the Cinematography podcast presented by Hot Rod Cameras, a program about the art, craft and philosophy of the moving image and the people who make it happen. Coming to you from the world headquarters of Hot Rod Cameras in Hollywood, California, are your hosts, Ben Rock and Ilya Friedman. Hello, Ben Rock. How are you today? Hello, Ilya Friedman. I'm doing uh, better every day. Every day that I don't have COVID is just a wonderful day that I didn't that I didn't suffer through. You look better. We're on Zoom right now, and you look better. Like you look, you know, I, I, you still have the pandemic cut, but you look like a, a thousand percent better. Yeah, yeah. I, I my hair hasn't been this long. The last time my hair was this long, you could still see Nirvana in concert. <laughs> nice. Uh, and, yeah. and, and you probably did. I, I never did, unfortunately. I wish I had. So, Ilya, who do we have on the show today? Uh, on today's show is a talented cinematographer, Andrew Dunn, who, of course, shot Holy the new, crap. The new Just, United States versus Billie Holiday. Yeah, the United States versus Billie Holiday, which uh, we are recording this as the Golden Globe ceremonies are happening, or they shortly just happened, and it has won a Golden Globe for its lead actress. It is. Uh, uh, yeah, Andrew Day just, just won for Best Actress, and uh, congratulations yeah. to her. And I think you kind of called and it. what way. a performance, yeah. I have to say. Her performance is just like raw and emotional and beautiful and brilliant, and it's also insane to me how much she looks and sounds like Billie Holiday without it feeling like an impersonation. That it's uncanny. And she channels Billie Holiday, it seems like, in a way that uh, I know audiences just completely responded to. I responded to. Uh, I'm, for one, wasn't crazy about the movie as a whole. I'm not actually the biggest Lee Daniels fan. I'm just going to go out and say that, put it on the record right now. It's not not always my, my cup of tea, but there is a lot to love about that movie. And uh, Andrew Day's performance is incredible. And, uh, and the cinematography, I think, is uh, gorgeous and brilliant and uh, really, really evokes the time and, and takes you into places that, you know, myself, I, I had never seen before on film. I, th- I thought it really was, uh, you know, uh, every musical biopic and uh, Walk Hard, the Dewey Cox story perfectly satirized this. <laughs> every musical biopic is the same goddamn story about like the well-meaning talented so-and-so who claws their way up to fame and glory only to be taken down by their avarice and greed and drug abuse usually and then is saved by the love of a good woman not, what i not appreciate this movie. about uh, <laughs> yeah, not this, this movie <laughs> starts in the descent it's yeah. uh it, it starts she's already a heroin addict there's like she she's a very deeply flawed lead character and i say that with the utmost respect i love how this movie throws out the formula and kind of invents its own structure for this kind of a story, not to impugn any of the many movies that walk hard was parodying. But after a while, it's like, yeah, I've seen Ray, I've seen walk the line and Amadeus. Amadeus. (laughs) (laughs) He is not saved by the love of a good woman. He in fact dies in Amadeus. Well, um, I had had to think of something else that broke the mold and also, you know, won Academy Awards. So, yeah, yeah. Great movie, actually, yeah. Amadeus. You could have gone with Immortal Beloved. I actually think that sticks with the, oh, the formula I, I, a little I, bit better with, I, with Gary Oldman playing Beethoven. Anyway, yeah. <laughs> that's quite a diversion. It is. So, Ilya, okay. what, what do we have for our close focus uh, segment today? Well, since we're talking a lot about awards and Golden Globes, I think we ought to talk about the LA Times article all about the Golden Globes, which just dropped last week. And, uh, you know, the, the Golden Globes are an embattled organization. They have had uh, a number of scandals over the years. And this latest sort of expose, uh, courtesy of the LA Times, really kind of takes you back on a path of all the things that sort of the, the organization may have gotten wrong. And uh, really, though, when I when I hear about it, it's it's quite public because it's a it's a major entertainment industry organization. But but really, the same types of issues that they are dealing with sounds a lot like other organizations that I'm familiar with or have heard stories about over the years. And I don't think that 
their problems are totally unique. I just think that their problems are much more public. And while the Hollywood foreign press is a very small body of people, and because of that, they wield enormous power in the awards season of Hollywood, the idea of like corruption and insulatory and not exactly being friendly to outsiders and trying to preserve the way of the gravy train for some of its uh, more higher compensated members who, uh, frankly, don't necessarily qualify at least it sounds like for sort of as the category of journalist anymore or maybe don't actually Mm. uh, aren't the day in and day out journalists that uh, maybe they once were but uh, beyond all that I think the Hollywood foreign press it's entirely possible for them to fix all of their problems their their PR problems and I don't think it would take too much to do what they need to do Uh, but of course the latest one is a diversity scandal they have zero black members even though they're incredibly foreign and fairly diverse a lot of them are European. A lot of them are white. And uh, I know they don't have great Turns representation. Out there, are, there are black journalists who live in Europe. I know I know that that's <laughs> going to blow everybody's mind, but there are, in fact, black journalists in Europe. And and you know what? Uh, and, and in Asia, too, they tend to be poorly represented. I know uh, in, in parts mm. of Asia, I have a friend who is actually a working full-time journalist for a Japanese website that does all the movie reviews and everything else, but is not a member of that organization. And it really has been a club that the, the ranks of that organization doesn't change very much over the years. I think, yeah, I, I mean, I don't know very much about the Hollywood Foreign Press Association, but they seem like a weird insular group that created the Golden Globes to kind of exalt themselves and to get themselves celebrated and take pictures with movie stars. And they've been kind of running. I feel like every year I read a shocking expose about the Hollywood foreign press association, because you know, the, the, the Academy of motion picture arts and sciences is maybe not the most transparent organization. And maybe there are some flaws or whatever, but we know what they are. Like we know who they are. We know what they are. They're transparent about like how the voting goes and stuff like that. And they're self-correcting to some degree. Like when the Oscar so white scandal hit, I don't know, it was like five or six years ago, they decided to kind of change how people could be Academy voters and let people age out of being Academy voters and kind of realized like if they wanted to be relevant, they had to make changes. But the Golden Globes have never had that kind of a like I feel like every year there's a pushback against the Golden Globes of basically everyone going, who are these people again? And then Mm -hmm. next year we're doing the same thing. But I think the Golden Globes as a ceremony is funnier than the Oscars and less uptight and up its own ass. So, you know, we want to watch, you know, Jack Nicholson accept the Lifetime Achievement Award while drunk. Nothing more entertaining than that. That's not going to happen at the Oscars. We we want Ricky Gervais to be making fun of the organization that he's working for. Sure. Uh, when the Golden Globes are presented, we we want Tina Fey and Amy Poehler to be making fun of them. We we want this. There's there's a good amount of poking fun, but you know, uh, I, I'm gonna just come out and say right now, I've got like 15 ideas on how to actually make the Golden Globes work and 15. to fix their PR. You have a list of I got like 15. I got a list of 15. I'm only going to do one. I'm going to give you one right now because I think this is the number one difference. Um, I want to hear the other 14. Maybe I'll have to. You well, know. Uh, okay. Well, yeah. we'll, we'll, we can do it. We can do it offline. But hey, yeah. if, if, if Hollywood Foreign Press, if you're listening to this and you want to contact me for my list of 15, happy to give you yeah, my here, 15. Here's but a here's, little free here, sample the, for you. This is the first, the first hit of crack Hollywood Foreign Press <laughs> that, Association. The next one will cost you. That, that's right. Okay. A phone call. You that's to, all it'll cost you. Is, is, uh, <laughs> <laughs> no, are you kidding? It's a gravy train. I got to get in on that. I got to get. Yeah. I got to get my. my got to get my, some of that Hollywood oh. Foreign Press Association money going there. But, but of, of course, the problem is, of course, me not being a member of Foreign Press, being domestic press here. Not, not, but you have a eligible. name that sounds like you could be in the Foreign Press. So it does. You got that it does for sound you. like it. I, I I could fake it. A little but, bit. Okay. Here here it is. Everyone in the Academy works in motion pictures. It's a self congratulatory organization and every single person producers actors talent below the line they all work inside of it and every single one of those academy members has the opportunity to win an academy award doing whatever their craft is they've been exalted for what they're doing no members of the hollywood foreign press association have the opportunity to win a golden globe if they do that if they introduce like best journalism best you know best film writing for you know 2021 mm. or whatever whatever it might be if they introduce that category now the the membership the membership which tends to tends to be their their problem right now is their internal struggle is eating themselves all these yeah. anonymous people are to, speaking to the LA Times I don't care 
what anyone says, says, you know, they're not doing it for the awards or the accolades. But as soon as you introduce the the possibility now of all of those journalists, those 87 journalists or 82 journalists or however many it is, now they're in the running for one of those same statues. They get to get up there. They get to get that award. There is something that's always going to be in the back of their mind about like, huh, all right, do I really want to rock hmm, the boat maybe too I should, much? N- maybe I shouldn't vote for Johnny Depp in The Tourist. <laughs> But, you know, actual, actual Golden Globe winner. Anyway, yeah, go yeah, on. Yes, indeed. But but my, my point is this, that every single one of those people who are now criticizing the organization, if they are too critical, they're not going to only you know find themselves potentially outside the organization, but they're definitely not going to find themselves getting the accolade for for writing. And now, granted, some of them not maybe aren't writing or maybe aren't radio or television journalists really so much anymore. But hmm. I think there's a big portion of the membership that is actually doing that. And they all want to win that little statue. They all want that validation of their career. They want someone else to skin say. Skin in the game. You're exactly. saying that they have no skin in the game. Correct. And as soon as that changes, now their internal critics go, oh, okay. You know, even even if it's not overt, just the fact that they're running for it. And that's, I know this happens in the Academy. None of the Academy members really want to rock the boat too much, really want to push it. Occasionally, of course, it does get pushed. It gets pushed in good in good ways where, where things happen and real institutional change happens. But at the same time, they do it respectful and they're not trying to take down the organization in the process. All those Academy mm. members don't want the Academy to go away. That's not what they want. They still want to win their gold statue too. They want that sort of like peer recognition. And there's voices for change and ways they want to change it. But because that's always, you know, just hidden out there, they're just one job away from possibly also getting that sort of like validation. And it doesn't matter if you're above the line, below the line, if you are involved. Let me let me tell you, I have heard that publicists have been pushing for categories to be added to the the Academy Awards to say, like, hey, we're a publicist for a movie. They want it. They want their little gold statue, too. So I don't know if that will happen. But I think that if journalism, which, of course, there is really good. Hey, I would actually put us in the the film journalism category category because basically ostensibly we're talking about movies we're talking about stuff but there's great criticism Mm. if they added a couple of categories maybe they added a category that actually gave the film critics then like uh, a voice out there especially ones that are writing for foreign media i think that's really interesting and a lot of those do get syndicated and picked up in the u.s it's not like if you just write if you are writing in the english language or can be translated into the english language your work gets to be seen by a huge audience and there's no award for them and if they did that well which seems i think like, you're onto something too yeah because if, uh there's there's terrible, terrible uh, disrespect <laughs> for for no no there's yeah. terrible disrespect for uh for movie criticism and so what we've had lately i think is sort of a like the the people who are serious critics are still out there doing it but i think the jobs are harder for them to get i know people who are uh, film critics my friend scott weinberg my friend chris lloyd they both work in that world and i know that it's really really competitive and harder probably than it's ever been you know daily local newspapers are going away or being absorbed into conglomerates stuff ends up kind of in rando blog situations and i I just feel like there's been a general disrespect for criticism for a while when you don't have to agree with any critic no not at all but the quality of the writing joe morgenstern he he won you know pulitzer prizes i mean there are writing awards out there i sat next to him on an airplane once did Did you really oh that would have been so much fun i'm I'm super jealous he's my my favorite critic i was i was going to a wedding in boston and i'm sitting on the airplane and uh you know this guy recognizes his voice this guy comes in and sits next to me exactly that's how i I recognized him Uh, this guy comes in and sits next to me and i don't really think anything of it because i'm on an airplane and i'm being completely anonymous like usual right and I don't know if he still has a podcast, but at the time he had a podcast that I used to listen to every week. And he made a phone call before the plane took off and he's like, hey, this is Joe. And I recognized his voice. And as soon as it seemed like it was not an uncomfortably weird thing to say, I was like, hey, are you not Joe Morgenstern? Creepy. Are you Joe Morgenstern, the film critic of the Wall Street Journal? And he was like, yes, I am. And we talked movies the whole way from L.A. to Boston. Oh, I'm um, so jealous. And and uh, he couldn't have been nicer. And several times during the conversation, I was like, dude, I know this is your your day job. I, I hope I'm not bumming you out by asking. He's like, no, I love having these kinds of conversations. And literally the whole way from L.A. to uh, Boston, uh, nonstop talking to to Joe Morgenstern. And, and uh, I remember telling a friend that and uh, his snarky ass response was like, Oh, is Joe Morgenstern afraid of being recognized walking down the street? I was like, fuck you. Like, he's he's an amazing, amazing uh, film critic. 
He is. And his writing and his podcast and his reviews are, I, I, I mean, they're my personal favorite. I could listen to him wax poetically about just about anything out there. I, I, I love to hear his reviews. He ta- he elevates criticism to another level. And uh, I think it'd be great if there was an organization that recognized the work that people do in this very sort of specific little world that we're in. I mean, if, a- if that's what the Hollywood Foreign Press is, and I sort of feel like the Hollywood Foreign Press is just an organization that exists to do the Golden Globes. So, uh, but I, but I see your point, and I think it's a great idea for them to have skin in the game. Well, they they also donate money to certain charities, and they also support like the LA, uh, you know, Press Club. They do support some organizations out there and do some stuff. And it would be mm-hmm. it'd just be really nice though that if they did something ostensibly. Uh, really for their members or possibly even for people who weren't their members but are in the same line and to give some sort of award because I mean some some uh, writing some podcasts some criticism of films is is really really great art and it'd be wonderful if there was a place out there uh, a legitimate organization that said game recognizes game we we see what you're doing we love what you're doing we would like we'd like to promote that when you first said it i was like no one's gonna give you know like in the middle of the oscars you wouldn't like give it a best uh, journalist award but i i know i think you're i actually i i've come around i agree with you i think that that's a great idea thank you very much and if uh, any member of the hollywood ford and press uh, listens to this and you would like my other 14 uh, <laughs> tips for fixing your organization how to win people over and make everyone love the hfpa uh, contact us or contact me and I, i'll give them to you for free no, no charge You're like martin luther of the hollywood foreign press association like nailing your 15 ideas to their wall you know to their door in the middle of the night <laughs> but, you know i was when i read that la times article i was just like i was struck i was like you know uh, i mean look I've, I've been involved in certain organizations over the years and the problems that they're facing don't sound like problems that other organizations organizations don't have it's just more public mm-hmm. and there's ways to solve them there's absolutely ways to solve them and that i mean if they wanted to be they could be the envy of everyone else out there but you know yeah, they're, they're inst- and they should instead they're 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 sometimes a joke they're sometimes embattled they're sometimes made fun of but but ultimately one thing you can't you, you have to say about the hfpa is that they're resilient they are resilient like nobody's business they're around 80 plus years now or something and they're they're really Oof. i know it's it's incredible so well, they don't want to stop the gravy train. So uh, let's let's go ahead and uh, move on to our interview now with Andrew Dunn. The Cinematography Podcast Interview. So we are here with Andrew Dunn, an incredibly storied cinematographer. Uh, maybe you've seen little movies he's made like The Bodyguard, L.A. Story, and uh, all of his uh, his work with Lee Daniels. And he has a new movie coming out, which I was lucky enough to see last night, called The United States versus Billie Holiday. Thank you so much for coming on the show. Well, thank you for inviting me. It's a real pre- pleasure and privilege to be here. No, it is our privilege. So first of all, I kind of want to get into the United States versus Billie Holiday. It is gorgeous. It's an amazing story. And there's sort of a template I've always noticed with musical biopics, and it violates all of the cliches of a musical biopic in 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 beautiful ways. It's a lovely period piece. And I kind of wanted to know how, uh, first off, like, what's your philosophy when it comes to doing something that's a period piece? Are you trying to set us in the time? Are you trying to evoke the time? Like... What's the visual approach that you take to creating something that's such a such a lush period piece of something that has been so thoroughly documented? I think that one of the main philosophies is to take the audience back into that time and place. That's nothing new, but I want to invite mm-hmm. the audience in through the screen to actually be there at the time mm-hmm. with the right tone and also become the actor's friend. And th- there are so many scenes, like I'm thinking about like there's a big moment in the movie where she sings Strange Fruit and it feels like the camera, like it's just a close-up shot of her face through the whole song and kind of the, the emotional journey she's going through. Now, like when you and, and Lee Daniels were kind of talking about your visual approach to the movie, were there moments like that where it's like you've got all this period set dressing and gorgeous production design and all that stuff, but we're just going to focus like on an extreme close up of, of her face the whole time? But I think what happens is there's a sort of a meeting of minds and then something presents itself to us and, uh, and then we react to it. I think it's also to do with the build-up in the story and the script and the editing uh, and the prior performances of, of Andrew in this case and her experiences that lead us up into this moment. And it's, a, it's, it's musical. I mean, it's musical because it's a song, uh, but it's also musical because it's the it's ebb and flow of what we do 
a cinematographer is directing and actors, but then what the editor does is to create this sort of uh, troughs or peaks mm. and building us up into a moment. We see this space and inviting us in and we play the whole thing. I mean, it's, we, we obviously did other shots, but we knew at the moment that was, that was the key, that was the moment and that she mm. just connected to us. Um, and, it, and my heart, um, it tingles the back of my neck just thinking about it. It's almost a bit like... Um, you mentioned the bodyguard earlier to me. It's going way back to bodyguard when we did uh, Whitney singing um, "I Will Always Love You," and that I was in a hotel in Miami, and I was on one lens, a couple of lenses. That's like a one-take thing, and you knew that, that that moment that something special was happening. I always wonder about those moments when you see these iconic moments in in movies, and you wonder, like, on set, did everyone, or uh, you know, did the people who were paying the most attention to it at that moment realize that like cinema was happening at that moment, that they were capturing, you know, kind of magic? You do, you, yeah, absolutely, you do. I think certain projects where you sort of um, you don't quite know at the moment when you're doing it, and then the deeper we all get into it the audience has a, sorry, the audience, but the crew and the cast and people around this, this uh, the magic thing we're creating, suddenly realized, wow, this is going to be special. And my first film, Lee Daniels, actually, we didn't know when we first started uh, what it was going to be like. And That was precious, so, right? Yeah. Precious. Um, and, uh, and then we got into it and suddenly Gabby and the other kids and the Monique, um, just, you, you realize that we are getting absorbed into this where the, the audience is going to get absorbed into it and something special is happening. There's the mix, the, the mm -hmm. cake mix. So I had a question as I was watching the United States versus Billie Holiday, and that was stylization versus spontaneity. And we've talked to lots of cinematographers on here who will talk about how they light a room so the actors can kind of do whatever and they can follow them. But the United States versus Billie Holiday, from my eyes, looks like everything about it looks so really specifically designed and stylized, and yet the performances are so real and so raw and so spontaneous feeling. And I was wondering while I was watching it, was there a philosophy that you and Lee Daniels kind of created to give actors more room to play in? Like, you know, obviously I'm just looking at the image. I don't know what kind of forest of sea stands and flags and stuff are going on in, in those rooms. Like, is there a way that you go about creating something Thing that has such a, a great kind of impressionistic period look, but also is is giving these actors room to like if they suddenly dart to the left, is it going to screw up the shot? No, I mean I think it's not about creating forest of lights. It's putting the lights in places where you can create an ambience that allows them the freedom, mm. and then if then we can create layers um, depth of the environment through layers back through the uh, the background and. Um, First of all, thank you very much. It's a great compliment to me because I, that's the way I do like to work. And it should be unseen, unheralded. You don't find an actor suddenly hitting a, hitting a key light or something. Yeah. So um, did you go to film school? Uh, like, how did you go about pursuing getting into the professional side of things? Right. Well, I started off hungry and desperate to get into, like, the business. and But I also realized I had to learn how to use cameras so i went my employer at the time allowed me to go for a day each week to go to a film school in north london and then i'd go to also film what i call film appreciation societies and go and watch films in the evening and also whenever i could and and um, just watch watch it's all about watching films i think if you watch films but they, just, they have to get hands and equipment so those two things is and going back to the hunger of it and also, there are other places I can go to, like on a weekend and Saturday mornings. And, um, ex uh, and I'm only going to a, a, a talk by Ray Harryhausen. Whoa! Yeah. <laughs> and when I thought, that's I said, awesome. That's, it's, yeah. it's awesome. Actually, so when I did a monkey, I felt a monkey bone with uh, Henry Selleck of James and yeah. the Jump Peach fame and Nightmare Before Christmas. And we just talked about Harryhausen. What was the London film scene like when you were first starting to kind of break in and, and get your feet wet professionally? Uh, well, I got into, I, through editing, I got into doing, and this is in the BBC when I got into the camera side. So where the BBC was great was because we did a whole range of different work. So you do a documentary about something. And the next week you might do what they call a drama, which is now, now called a TV movie. So you get involved mm -hmm. with those. So 
that was what I was doing and involved in. And then the, the range of work that we had to do, you, you learned so much on your feet because every time of the day you would uh, be asked for different things uh, for different subjects and they'd get um, all 60 mil film. And, and then I moved from London to Scotland and there my boss, who was quite an avant-garde, I'm very, very lucky because he was very supportive. He, he believed in what I wanted to do. And he pushed me into a higher quality range of work. So I do more drama, working more like uh, TV films up there with actors and mixed with documentaries, gadget documentaries, actually local news also. Uh, so I think all these things, you just learn to, to not have to rely on budgets being what they are. And there's always producers saying what you can't have. But in, in the end, you have quite a lot of equipment. So mixing then for me, the, the, one of the, the joys looking back, a great learning curve for me was learning what you didn't need. Mm -hmm. So you do a documentary, we'd have like a couple of lights, a reflector or something. And, and, you know, like as I look at the wide scope of your of your work, because, you know, you've been doing stuff since the, the late 70s. One thing that kind of pops out at me is, I, I mean, there are movies like Monkey Bone that feel like they might have been very technology driven or, you know, persnickety from a framing, you know, like, you know, because they were so precisely done in, in the way that they needed to be done. But most of your work seems to be very character driven. And, you know, when you've got stuff like The Bodyguard or The Madness of King George all your work with Lee Daniels, I could go on Gosford Park. To me, it's interesting because I feel like, especially today, we're kind of, we're in a period of like high visual stylization, CGI, superhero stuff. And there's nothing wrong with that. But I feel like your work is refreshingly different than that. And I feel like one of the things that we lose with a lot of the kind of modern technology, even the stories that we're choosing to tell as like the giant blockbuster movies, because people forget like, the Bodyguard was a huge blockbuster movie. That was a that was a massive massive movie. That was as big as Iron Man in its day. But can you talk a little bit about kind of focusing on the character stuff and like what is it that you're doing when you're focusing on a mostly character movie? I mean, I would love to talk about I could probably talk for hours about Monkey Bone alone, but honestly, like so much of your stuff is is so character focused and is that a choice that you made? I think it's a subconscious choice. Mhm. Mm I think those projects that are character-driven, I'm attracted to them. Mm -hmm. But I, thought, I also think that people who make those are maybe attracted to what I do. And going back to Lee, I think what, that he may have seen something like that. I don't recognize it in myself. I think it's just who I am. I'm a, an observer of people, of character. That's that's no. I, I mean, I think that that's great, and you know, and, and I'm not trying to slag on any of the uh, you know the big Marvel movies or whatever. And we've actually interviewed several of the people who've shot those movies, and I know that everyone's you know they're they're trying to make them personal and connected. But I feel like it seems like we've migrated a, a lot of our like character stuff to television, and it's exciting to see a movie that still kind of is focused on character and you know and and doesn't feel pre-visualized and storyboarded within an inch of its life. It feels more spontaneous spontaneous you know but without giving up you know looking beautiful and and having a, a real vision behind it so i'm also interested that la story was like the first thing that you you'd ever made in la had you been to la before then um i don't think i, I, don't think I had i just ask you as as someone who lives in la like so it's a movie that is so about la and feels so like uh in a way it's a loving tribute to la in a way it's a biting satire of la at the same time and you're shooting it and it's your first time uh, there or one of your earliest times there and i'm interested in like what your perspective on LA through the lens of making LA story was at that time. I don't it, it, like, I, I think it's amazing that they brought someone who wasn't and it. Cause like, you know, you, you could throw a rock out of my house and hit 60 uh, DPs who shoot in LA every day. So bringing someone who wasn't an LA native or who didn't live in LA is a, a really cool idea. Cause you're seeing it fresh. I think that's, I, I think you've hit the nail on the head. I think it's fresh. I was pretty young to be doing that. And then subsequently the bodyguard and things, but I, um, I was sort of, I, I go through my life trying to be uh, wide-eyed and wondered about the world. And I think it's very mm. important what we do as cinematographers and the, the danger is cynicism to creep in. Yeah. So I still try to keep this wide-eyed wonderful and being naive and open to everything. So I think coming from UK 
to LA allowed. So I was just, wow, this is, I mean, I could go, all this stuff I was seeing for the first time. And of course, LA Story has a sense of this wonderment and uh, seeing it for the first time. And I think it goes back a long way to British people coming in, like John Schlesinger doing Midnight Cowboy, Peter Yates going over there and doing uh, Bullets. And, mm. and um, it's a whole, and, and, and other European and Australian directors coming in to the States and seeing it fresh for the, like, for the first time. It has a, has a fresh eye. And I think yeah, that was yeah. Mick and myself. And I think also Steve was smart enough to um, recognize that. Like I think about in LA Story, there's that scene in the uh, famous five-way intersection in Beverly Hills, and I kind of wonder, like, when you were setting up those shots, or when you were, you know, composing those shots, I don't know if you would, you know, you probably had scouted it or something, but like, you know, the absurdity of that, like the the physical absurdity of of that intersection, which is like my worst, my my least favorite intersection in the entire city. I I kind of wonder if like when when you were shooting stuff like that, did the absurdity hit you, and you were like. I, I know this is maybe even too much of a mechanical question, but like finding the most absurd angles to, to shoot that from. Whereas like somebody who's been here forever would just be like, ah, whatever, everybody knows this. But for the first time I ever saw that intersection was in your movie. Yes, quite absolutely. I mean, exactly. Because for me to go there and actually experience, see it, you say scout it, look at the angles and decide how we're going to cover this. It, there is an absurdness about LA, but there's a wonder and magic. Uh, there is magic in there. And also anything can, can grow and it's a desert basically, but you can water something, you know, creatively and, and just one's life, which is what happens in the film also, and things will grow out of this desert. Was wonderful, wonderful thing. So, so there's this whole, as you said, absurdity thing going on with the five-way junction. But the mechanics of choosing those angles, I think we approached it in a fresh way, seeing seeing for the first time. Because as you say, you you saw you you saw that for the first time in that film, and other people around the world. I mean, I speak to people in in UK who you know talk about what films I've done in the past. And his story is still one of their favourites. So it's all these people in the world who've seen this first time. I think, and, and that's for me another very important thing as a cinematographer: the way to shoot things for each scene, each sequence is, is approached in a very fresh way. Because the audience, only, the audience see this for the first time. You know, it's like we can do on a, on a shot, we can do uh, three three rehearsals, eight takes, and who knows what the editor is going to choose. But each one of those has to be new, spontaneous, and fresh. So. Did I mean, I'm assuming since Mick Jackson also directed it, that that led to The Bodyguard. But like, again, I'm looking at the at the progression, Chattahoochee, L.A. Story, The Bodyguard. Like those are three extraordinarily different films. Like they're, they're I, I couldn't tell you what was the same about them, except for you and Mick Jackson <laughs> and being very character based, as we talked about earlier. Like, I feel like your work is so is so character based. And Mick was, I think, <laughs> Mick was as surprised as anybody because he called me up and said, oh, I got a call from Kevin Costner last Sunday morning saying, can I do this film with him? And uh, I was like, okay. And um, that's how that happened. It's, uh, and it, of course, again, Kevin saw something in Mick's work, um, not through, you know, there's a lot of music in The, the Bodyguard. A lot of music. It's, yeah, Whitney Houston's one of the stars too. You know, like you know, one of the one of the biggest musicians of the time. She's this huge um, icon. She was hot property, and Kevin was too. Kevin. That was sort of peak, peak Kevin Costner. That was right after Dances with Wolves, if I'm not mistaken. Uh, it, it was. I think I was in L.A. during prep. Actually, yeah, I tell you what, because we were in Miami in the Fountain Blue Hotel, and that's where we shot, where we filmed and recorded. This, the, the song, The Bodyguard, I Will Always Love You. And I was on a, I was actually operating on a long lens on that, a 300 mil lens on her. Oh, my God. <laughs> and even talking about it now, I get tingles by my spine. These magical moments, when you're lucky enough to be a cinematographer to do what we do, is you live these moments. And when they last, this is like 30, 31 years ago, however long it is, and uh, it still sends, the magic is still there. So you, what we live and strive for these moments but that that in the fun blue hotel is um where we shot and there's a one on that song it's like a one take thing they had all the recording trucks wow. outside really? and we bought borum in there and uh, she just uh, did and this little person this little whitney houston person you could walk, walk you could see her in the corner and just walk past and then it's this sort of 
this person grew in before your eyes. She grew into the star and the lights, the microphone, and so on. It's just like it's incredible, you know. And it was, I think it was one take um, we did for that song. That is crazy. Well, and then that, and you were saying the same thing about Billie Holiday with uh, Strange Fruit, yes. right? Yeah, it's, that's extraordinary. And uh, and so, um, and the reason I say about Kevin Costner being in the height of his career, because he actually went, he got the Academy Award the previous year, I think, for dance as best director. Yeah, with, well, dance, uh, 1990, beat Goodfellas. I'll never forgive it. Yeah, so yeah, so knowledgeable. So, like, I always kind of ask when there was like that the big breakthrough because it seems to me like Chattahoochee to LA story from where I sit, not knowing your career as well as you do, obviously, like that looks like the moment where it's like you had your audition to be a DP on you know big Hollywood movies and and you got it, and then you got LA story, but the Bodyguard was like like seriously one of the biggest movies of that year it, it was i think it's uh, it, it, when it came out i think worldwide it's second second biggest producer to after et or something like that um and i didn't know i guess i didn't understand the importance of this i was just like, doing what i did i think what it did for me and i did i think i probably did realize this at the time that it's it's sort of having been associated with a big hit it made my i was slightly more secure as secure as we ever can be, uh, that I had a career. I think that's a great place to stop. Thank you so much for for coming on the show. Before we go, is there any place online people can uh, see your work, or you know, do you have a website, even an Instagram or Twitter, or anything? I don't have a website. I have Instagram, which is Andrew Dunn DP. Andrew well, cool. Well, hopefully uh, our listeners will check that out and follow you on Instagram and definitely check out the United States versus Billie Holiday, which is coming on Hulu. Definitely check it out. It's gorgeous, gorgeous, amazing work from Lee Daniels directing and, and our guest, Andrew Dunn. So thank you very much, Andrew. It was a pleasure to meet you. Likewise. Thank you very much. Look forward to the next time. So that was Andrew Dunn. Holy crap. And I kind of want to let people listening know too, by the way, like we got talking to Andrew and he's so brilliant and interesting. And he was talking about uh, a lot about the United States versus Billy Holiday, a lot of stuff about his working relationship with Lee Daniels. And we kind of used up all our time on that. And then he was generous enough to hop on the phone uh, or hop on Zoom again so that we could go into LA story and the bodyguard and, you know, all the amazing stuff that he's done. I mean, he, he just has an amazing and storied career. And, and I think he had a lot of real insight, hopefully, uh, you know, people who are listening to this and kind of philosophically tr- grappling with the idea of being a cinematographer. I thought he had some just great insights into, into his job. I also love the fact that the first time he'd ever been to L.A. was making L.A. story. I, I think that's awesome. <laughs> that, that That's a nice fit for sure. Yeah. There, there's so uh, many wonderful little inside jokes in that movie, too, that like only if you've lived in L.A. for a while do they come through. Yeah. Like, but uh, they, what I thought was cool about it was, you know, like the five point intersection in Beverly Hills. Like yeah. that's got to look ridiculous to someone who doesn't live in L.A. I mean, it looks ridiculous to me. But, it's ridiculous uh, to drive. Yeah, it is. <laughs> but, but I think that like somebody who's seeing it for the first time is going to find the absurdity. They're going to find the most ridiculous angle of it because they're not inured to how stupid, uh, you know, <laughs> the, the stuff like that is. Anyway. I've seen some close calls in that intersection. <laughs> <laughs> and now, short ends. So, Ilya, it is time for our world-famous award-winning short-end segment where we talk about our pet obsession of the week. What is your pet obsession this week? Wow. Okay. So, like when you promoted the hell out of 20 Seconds to Live for about six weeks in, in a row, I have to do something self-serving right now. I think it was right more like got... two years in a row. I, I, okay, I, it might I, have been two years would, in a row. So. I would still encourage everyone to go check it out, 20STL.com. Bye. Go on. <laughs> I appreciate you, uh, you you finding a way to plug that in right now. I'm, I'm glad, no uh, glad you were able to do that. Okay, so Hot Rod Cameras, my company, hotrodcameras.com, uh, the website. We've now expanded into something new, something I never thought that we would really do, or at least not in a way that involved me, because I certainly don't like being on camera. That's part of the reason why our podcast, even though it's about something visual, is audio. I don't really want to have people looking at me when I do this all the time. We started a YouTube channel. We actually started a YouTube channel years ago, but now I'm in some YouTube videos uh, talking about 
technology, talking about, well, I actually don't know all the things that we're going to be talking about yet, but we've now made two videos, two videos now in one week. Well, they went live all, all in the same week. We're definitely not going to be keeping up that pace precisely, but we did a review of the uh, Sony FX6, which is an incredible camera. And basically three days after that video dropped, Sony made a liar out of us by uh, releasing the Sony FX3. And the FX3 uh, became the smallest full-frame digital cinema camera, which I had made the claim and made a big deal about in the previous one. So mm-hmm. we were almost obligated now to come back and, and fix the lies that we had told because at the, the time lies. we told them they were true. They were the true. Dissembling but- the untruths. Yeah, exactly. But uh, I got to say, the reaction to the video has been really, really kind. And I've been getting uh, public comment messages as well as uh, private text messages from people basically saying that uh, we've somehow been able to take like the YouTube camera review video and elevate it, which is like uh, which is high praise. I, I'm, I'm really pleased that people uh, have come out in in strong form of support, considering we're a very small YouTube channel with only like a thousand subscribers, but we're already like trending now, like in FX3 videos when you click on the hashtag and stuff like that. Excellent. Near the top. So, so yeah, really cool. That's, that's amazing. So, uh, now I've got to make a whole plan or if people have ideas about what they would like us to do on our YouTube channel, please reach out to me, reach out either through YouTube or from hot rod cameras or get a hold of me through one of the social ways and let us know what it is you'd like to see because, uh, we actually have a full-time uh, person at hot rod cameras now responsible for managing social media something we have never done before and uh yeah that's uh that's that's something new here here's your million dollar idea here's how you get all your subscribers you ready sit down ready. you're wearing a seatbelt. i i, I uh, hold on okay i'm now gear unboxing videos just make <laughs> unboxing of gear videos no i'm not no, joking no and it's it's been done it it's gonna get you a ridiculous <laughs> number of subscriptions i don't i'm think not so. lying you really think so? If I just unbox uh, something, well, you have to like gonna... show what everything is. But yeah, I mean, it's like a new product that hasn't come out yet. So, like, let's say you did an unboxing of the FX3 before anyone else has even gotten their hands on an FX3. Oh my God, people eat up those unboxing videos. I don't get really? why, but they do. Yeah, I'm telling you. I, I, I'm telling you. Uh, well, we did have mark my uh, words. I have a real aversion to unboxing videos, but okay. Okay. Um, I thank, thank you, Ben. I, I appreciate it. Uh, we did have though, like, I just made you a million dollars, Ilya. So. I don't think you did. Millions. <laughs> okay. So the Southern California black magic representative got his black magic new pocket 6k pro camera the same day that, that ours arrived at the shop. So we didn't have to break open one of our, ours. He was like, Hey, I'll come over and I'll spend a couple hours in your parking lot and we'll shoot some tests and do some stuff. Sweet. And, uh, I know that nobody else got that. No other. I mean, well, here, I shouldn't say that. Maybe he did go visit a couple of the shops, but I don't think anyone took full advantage of the time that we did. We shot some video. We did some stuff. We could absolutely release that as its own YouTube video. God, yes. And I think I think we will. In the past, we would do all that stuff, but we just wouldn't tell anyone about it. We would just, you know, we'd have our own you know, personal knowledge of this. It wasn't necessarily fair to always share that because... One of the things we do when we test cameras is we break them. We we don't physically break them, but we break the images. We break the sensor. We yeah, figure you, out you you push it to its limit. Exactly, and that's not really fair, especially if you want to sell a product to always be showing something in its worst possible light. And you have to give people context and perspective if you want them to understand. And even if you do all that, though, they may not get what it is that they're looking at. They just want to see people in slow motion making pretty pictures online, and uh, that's frankly, not very useful to professionals. That doesn't actually tell them very much, except that, oh, look, you can make a pretty picture. Guess what? I can make a pretty picture with a cell phone from six years ago or, you know, an old Canon HDV camera or a bunch of other things. Just making a pretty picture does not tell you the story of the camera. And so that's what we're going to try to do. Well, so that's a call to action. That's not just a short end. That's a please go spend literally no money. But if you have a YouTube account and you're hearing the sound of my voice, go on YouTube and subscribe to Hot Rod Cameras YouTube channel which will be linked in the show notes. And, and uh, I would be remiss if I didn't say that the Cinematography Podcast now actually has a YouTube channel, which, of course, you can go to uh, at the same time um, and subscribe there, which has got uh, our oldest episodes now being turned into a video format, which doesn't actually have video, but it has a picture of your face, Ben, and my face and the little, like, you know, waveform going on at the bottom of the screen. And essentially, it's our podcast in YouTube format. We have been told that some people want to listen to our podcast while they're on their computer and for some reason they're on youtube all the time so that's an easy way to go and see this and actually ben katz the editor has been doing a really good job of picking up little uh behind the scenes still photos and other sort of like uh, visual stuff and inserting them when appropriate i know it's not going to be constantly but when we do talk about a movie and things like that sometimes the the one sheet comes up or 
production stills or things like that. So it's, it's, it's fun. It's another way for you to enjoy our podcast. And another way to say Ben Katz is awesome. Yeah. Ben Katz is awesome. All right. So Ben, what's your short end this week? My short end is kind of a sad thing. It's the, it's an end of an era. I don't know if you ever read Cinefix magazine. Oh yes. Me too. And I have a lot of classic Cinefixes and uh, you know, I learned a lot about filmmaking technique, reading Cinefix. For those of you who haven't read Cinefix back when we would, buy physical magazines all the time. Uh, Cinefix was always on the newsstand and it would be like the deepest dive, not just like a puff piece, but they would show you. I remember when Terminator 2 came out, I had the Cinefix and they talked about the individual programs that they wrote to do some of the CGI that was groundbreaking CGI. And I'll I'll always remember that when the T-1000 walked through the prison bars Mm. and like it squished around his face, they wrote a thing called Make Sticky. (laughs) And that was the routine that they were running on him in, in, in CGI land to do it what they were doing i have still have copies of cinefix for uh, ray harryhausen movies like uh clash of the titans i still have the one for dead ringers mm. uh, the david cronenberg movie that innovated how to do split screen and and move the camera and uh cinefix finally threw in the towel this week they are they are done wow not, um, not even online and, only they're they're just they're completely yeah sh- wow and I think that we live in an era like um, there's there's a, a visual effects resource called FX Guide that weirdly kind of in a sideways way plays into us doing what we're doing because they released Red Center, also the RC. And our first guest ever was Jason Wingrove, who was the co-host of the RC uh, that I listened to because I was kind of, you know, w- I mean, I still listen to the FX Guide podcast and I'll go to their website. But I feel like FX Guide has become the, the de facto deep dive into uh how visual effects are done and they usually have a lot of video also you know there's tons of stuff like on we've talked about on here like corridor crew on youtube they do a lot of stuff where they show how visual effects were done in in other movies and uh there there are so many resources and it's probably hard for cinefix to keep up with it i wish somebody would buy the intellectual property that is cinefix and reboot it in some way because not only do they go back to i believe the late 70s I, th- I want to say like Close Encounters or something like that was one of their first issues. But, uh, you know, so they have this enormous breadth of material. Like it would be great if it all got released online somehow. And if there was a way to kind of carry it forward, even if like FX Guide purchased them as uh, an intellectual property and released, you know, their back catalog. Because some of their stuff was just, for me anyway, was like mind expanding. Oh, that's how you make movies. And it was, you know, one of the things that was exciting about making movies was doing the stuff that I, I read about in Cinefix. I think you're 100% right. I think someone should buy that intellectual property and uh, they should do something with it, including, I, I bet that they're, they could probably make it into an app. The whole thing could be digitized. You could probably buy it for, you know, the Cinefix was never a cheap magazine, but if could you imagine a digital version of all copies for $25 or something like that? Uh, I, I think that yeah, a lot of people, I mean, would... I think that would be great. I mean, yeah, I think like when regular magazines were running usually around four or $5, an issue of Cinefix would run you about 16 bucks or something, something like that. Yeah. And, and they didn't come out all the time. Uh, but it was four times a year. It was quarterly. Yeah, quarterly. But uh, how much joy did you get out of looking at Cinefix? And especially when, you know, this is pre-internet era, hard to come by that kind of information, hard to come by that. And the, the, the dives yeah. were, were were so deep. And uh, sometimes they, they range into just uh, entire technical discussions. But when you couldn't find that information anywhere else, and here was this, you know, industry publication that was coming out, it was wonderful. It was a lot of fun to read. I, I, I got I gained yeah. so much from that. I did too. And I probably started drifting away from it myself when every issue was wall to wall, how computer graphics were done and Uh, stuff. Agreed. Because Uh, I wasn't doing computer graphics, but when it was more physical effects, uh, which, you know, is basically everything up until, you know, mid nineties, probably. And I would read it after that. Like if it was about, uh, if they were, if they were covering a movie that I was especially interested in and I wanted to know how they did the effects, because, you know, I sort of feel like when it when you're in the all CGI world, it's like, well, they got some computer guys to make some stuff in the computer and then they did that. But, uh, you know, when you're talking about Ray Harryhausen, who does like all the monsters in a monster movie with like himself and a gaffer and that's it. To me, that's fascinating to see that process. Or, you know, like I brought up Dead Ringers. There was a, uh, an issue where they did the three Terry Gilliam movies. So they, they did Time Bandits, Brazil, and The Adventures of Baron Munchausen all in one issue. And like the physical effects that were done in those movies are, you know, to this day, some of the most uh, groundbreaking and unique that I've ever seen. 
So much fun. I, I'm always reminded anytime someone says the word time bandits, I always imagine reimagine in my brain the giant wearing the the ship for a hat. So yeah. uh, like like every time it's like time bandits boop, that immediately pops into my head. So uh, and, and, and well, and, and, and in those Terry Gilliam movies, like the shocking amount of miniature work that they did and how how well it, it plays. Like I watched Brazil recently and knowing that all the stuff of uh, Sam Lowry in the wingman costume. And I know this because of Cinefix, that was all done with a, basically a really nice puppet on a string in a in a cloud set that was fake. And you watch it today and it's like, I buy it. I buy it all. It's completely perfectly executed for not just for its technology, but I feel like it, you know, it stands up to being looked at today. Uh, I agree. A lot of those physical effects uh, in, in movies, including those Terry Gilliam movies, hold up incredibly well. And I actually think they hold up better than a lot of CG that's come out since. So. Oh, yeah, for sure. But anyway, uh, so rest in peace, Cinefix. If you've never read Cinefix and you can find some copies at a used bookstore or something, if you're allowed to go to used bookstores, <laughs> which which I am not, definitely do it and uh, keep the dream alive. Go check out FX Guide if you want to kind of get an idea of, of, of what a deep dive into visual effects can be like. All right. So, Ben, I think uh, that just about does it for us. Uh, where can people find you online if they uh, they want to track you down? Please go to benrockonline.com and uh, you can find all my social medias there and, uh, you know, feel free to add me on, uh, you know, the, the Twitters or the, the links in, I don't know, <laughs> what's the plural of LinkedIn. Feel free to add me on any of those and, uh, you know, tell me if uh, you're adding me on something like Facebook, say, hey, I listen to the podcast. So I know you're you're not a Russian bot trying to, uh, you know, get my friends list. But yeah, hit me up there. Ilya, where can people find you? Uh, they can find me uh, over at Hot Red Cameras. Hotredcameras.com is the uh, is the shop. Also a real store in Burbank, California. Also says Hollywood because most people don't know where Burbank is. We really should redo that opening VO and say in Burbank. You know what? I, I don't think so, because really out outside of outside of these like 20 miles no one knows Burbank unless you used to watch like you know the Burbank Tonight Show before I something. ever moved to LA I knew it I knew that Burbank was a thing out but, here but I didn't did, know where it was you didn't know where it was you didn't I, I and mean, really it's like Burbank borders on Hollywood so it's like it's literally you drive over the hill North well, Hollywood no it borders anyway. on regular Hollywood as well too I mean yeah Los sure. Feliz <laughs> and all that stuff it's like that's Hollywood so anyway uh, but, but here I'm digressing uh, you know actually I should also plug though go find uh, the Cinepod uh, the, go find this show. Also, our official website is uh, Cam Noir, camnoir.com. And we're on the Instagram at the Cinepod. And then we're on Facebook at Cinepod. So go go find go find those things and uh, like us, subscribe us there. You'll get reminders if you don't want to actually subscribe for, for whatever reason for your RSS feed. We will send episode information out you know every week when it goes and you can go like oh hey there, there's that you can also get uh visuals you get like a usually uh our producer alana and ben katz put together nice little teasers of stuff so you get a little flavor of what's coming before it actually happens so if you if you go to uh facebook or you go to instagram uh follow the cinepod and you will uh get this cool stuff all the more frequently Cool. So, uh, Ilya, who should we thank this week? Let's thank the before-mentioned Alana Cody. Let's thank uh, Ben Katz. And let's thank Kay Zalatrachi. Who is most likely not listening to this episode. Most likely. One day, I hope to actually hear him say, Hey, you know, I was listening to the episode and I heard you say that I didn't listen, but that's never happened. Yeah, yeah. And we also have been saying for a long time that we'll interview him, and we really should. We we have uh, no excuse now. We we might as well just do it. He's... He's the ultimate uh, multi-hyphenate that I've ever known in my life. Anyway, that about wraps us up, and uh, we have some very exciting interviews coming up, so we will see you next week at the Cinematography Podcast. Thanks for listening. This has been the Cinematography Podcast, presented by Hot Rod Cameras. Find your next camera, lens, or accessory on the web at hotrodcameras.com. Don't forget to subscribe to our show on iTunes and connect with us on Facebook and Twitter. Thanks for listening.